Okay, welcome back. This is the ninth program in our accelerated NLP training series. We're going to move on to encoding. We're going to be on page 46 in your workbook. I want to ask you some questions. How many times has it happened to you that you've communicated with someone, maybe a member of your family or your partner or someone at work or your kids? You said something and then you saw the look on their face and their look on their face instantly put you in a bad mood or you go, oh my God, not again. How many times did you wake up in the morning and you were just in a bad mood and you go, oh no, I don't want to be in a bad mood today. I've got a busy day ahead of me. This doesn't work for me. I want to be happy. I want to be energetic. I've got so many things to do. And yet you were in a bad mood or you felt sluggish. And then you felt a prisoner of your own state. You felt like there was nothing you could do. So how would you like to learn something that would assist you to not ever have to go through that again? Regardless of whatever's happening with your child or your mom or anything, if someone else is going red in the face, how would you like to get to the point where nothing happens? How would you like to have a little technique that will get you into a a great state in a matter of about 10 minutes? What would it be like to not be a prisoner of your emotional state? Something that you can flip like a switch or a button. Like imagine if you saw something or heard something and you didn't have to act the way you normally do. This is anchoring. And what's anchoring about anyway? Well, simply, it's a process of stimulus response. So what does that mean? It means that there's a stimulus, which could be kinesthetic like a touch or visual like a sight or a certain object, or it could be a sound. That's why people use alarm clocks when they want to wake up. When you think of all those little slogans that different companies sell, like if I asked you what is the sound of the Nike swish, you would know that. If I asked you what is the song for Coca-Cola from the 1980s, some of you would know that. And what happens is there's a stimulus and then you respond in a certain way. So the first person to notice this was a guy called William Twitmeyer. He was a medical doctor, and what he found was that if he hit a patient on the knee, then there would be a knee-jerk reflex. So he'd hit the patient on the knee, and the knee would jerk in a certain way. Now, that was in 1902, and he wrote a paper about the knee-jerk reflex, which he presented to the American Medical Association, and he noticed something else. He noticed that if he told the patient that he was going to hit the knee, and then hit the knee then sometimes the knee would jerk before he hit it. It was anticipating the hit. Now that sounds like an anchor, don't you think? Because it's a stimulus and a response. Anyway, he wrote a paper called The Knee Jerk Reflex and he presented it in 1902. And it didn't go very far. At the time, doctors didn't pay much attention to this. And a lot of people in the American Medical Association were interested in a lot of things. They were interested in the fact that the knee jerked. They were interested in the fact that you could hit the knee to determine whether the nerves and the ligaments beyond the knee were working. However, they weren't interested in anchoring. The notion of anchoring didn't get picked up because they weren't paying attention. But in Russia, in 1904, so a couple of years later, a researcher named Ivan Pavlov read this paper. He presented his paper to the Russian Medical Society, and he called it stimulus response. By 1904, he'd been doing a lot of work, you know, with dogs and other animals, and I'm sure you've heard of Pavlov's dogs, and he did stimulus response tests. 
he used to ring a bell and bring meat to the dogs and they would salivate and eventually the dogs connected the stimulus that was the bell with the piece of meat and then the stimulus actually allowed the dogs to respond with salivation even in the absence of meat. So the Russians actually paid attention and that particular paper grew into behavioural psychology. Behavioural psychology initially came from Ivan Pavlov, which was the result of Ivan Pavlov reading Will Twitmeyer's initial work on knee knee reflexes. Now, the interesting thing is that in NLP, we start to pick up on the idea of anchoring. And we notice that people are also subject to anchoring. It's not just animals. The way that we know that is we've watched people for a long time. So how many people have been subject to an anchor today? And just think for a minute whether there's been one that you've responded to. For example, when your phone rings, when your alarm clock goes off, when there's a particular ping on your phone and you realize, oh, that's Facebook. Those are all different types of anchoring. We have people raise their hands to answer questions. That's an anchor. Your alarm clock's an anchor, as I said. Driving in the car, when there's a spotlight, the red light is an anchor. It tells you, okay, this is the red light. This is the stimulus. The response is that I stop. So if I asked you the slogan for Apple, could you tell me? Or for Microsoft, could you tell me? Those are all anchors. Now, we don't believe that our behavior is just a result of anchors because that that would be reducing humans to a very simplistic animal-like response behavior. But our behavior is definitely influenced by a series of anchors. That is to say, a series of conditioned reflexes. The behavioral psychologists believe that we're simply a conditioned reflex machine. And that the learning of new things is simply a matter of setting up new anchors and connecting things to those anchors. Now, on one hand, they're right because that really works. But there is something more to us than just anchors. And we'll see that in the next programs in this training. And also, we'll really massively expand that during the master practitioner, especially during the values section, where we see that our individual values are actually determinants of our behavior, far more than just a reflex response to an anchor. We've learned the swish pattern, and I'm going to do a little bit of backtracking. And a swish pattern is an example of doing a visual anchor. If the client has his eyes open while you do the swish, you'll remember they see your hand go from the lower left-hand corner of the screen, swished up to the top right. That's a way of actually creating a visual anchor. Now, some people believe that NLP is just anchoring and reframing. However, we philosophically disagree with this because there's far more to a human being than that. However, in the olden days, that is essentially what was taught, anchoring and reframing. And anchoring and reframing are valuable tools and they are necessary for you to know because they actually can create a lot of resolution for a lot of clients. We need to talk about the definition of an anchor. Now, even if you're only doing the practitioner level in NLP, you still need to understand what an anchor is. So you need to know the definition. And if you go all the way through with us and do NLP and then go on to do our business and Uh, spiritual retreats or become a trainer then you definitely need to know the definition of an anchor and it's a pretty much the same definition all over the world so the definition goes like this anytime a person is in an associated intense state if we apply at the peak of that experience a specific stimulus then they get linked together neurologically and an anchor is formed 
So therefore, anchors can assist you in gaining access to past states and linking past states to the present and the future. Now that's useful, isn't it? Now here's the practical part. So we know what an anchor is, but what do we do with it? Okay. Now if you have a powerful resource anchor, and you can use it to control your state, then you would be able to touch it any time you needed it and invoke those feelings of being resourceful. If you stack together a series of resource anchors, so positive anchors all stacked on top of each other over and over and over again, anchored on your body somewhere, then at any time you need, you can actually fire that anchor and have access to all those resources. If you go back and you remember that at the beginning we talked about the NLP model of communication and there's a head, right? Remember the picture of the head? And there's a person and there's this external event that happens. You may not have considered that the external event could also simply be a thought that you had inside your head. So you can have things internally triggered. For example, memories that you think about or something that happened last year or a feeling that you had last year. Those can be internal and it can also be related to external events. So we're talking about that emotional state, okay? So the state is intimately coupled to a certain physiology and your body looks a certain way. For example, if you want to feel depressed, and I encourage you just to do it now, just briefly, just feel depressed, and notice what happens to your body. You tend to lean in and you shut down and you fold over. Yeah? Yeah? So remember back to that head, we had all these things. There's pictures, sounds, feelings, smells, and yourself. You can intimately couple that with a state, which could be happy, sad, frustrated, motivated, joy, etc., etc. And then that's individually coupled to a physiology, so how your body is actually performing in time and space. The relationship between the internal representation and the physiology ends up being the external state. State is what we anchor when we do anchoring. So you wonder why if somebody fires something at you, you respond emotionally and without control. And then later you go, why did I do that? It's because you have a trigger or an anchor. At the moment, you're probably not completely in control of your state. But when you start to apply this process, you'll be able to be in control of your state at any given time. Now let's go back to page 46. There's five keys to anchoring, and they are what makes an anchor an anchor. So first of all, in order to create an anchor, the person needs to be in an intense state. So number one, the intensity of the experience. If it's a blast state, it probably won't work. The state has to be really intense. Number two is the timing of the anchor. The timing of the anchor is vitally important because As you look in the diagram on page 46, you can see that a state starts from zero. Well, first of all, we need to describe the diagram so you're really clear about this. So we have time on the horizontal direction and we have intensity on the vertical. And so there's no state at all in the beginning and suddenly a state begins to grow. A new state appears and as it appears, it grows in intensity and grows in intensity and grows in intensity until it reaches that point where you can see written peak after which the state begins to diminish. By diminishing, it simply sort of disappears or it goes in or another state comes in, but it goes away. And if you look at that arc, a state starts, it comes up and then it goes down. Okay, great. If you look at for the fir- where the first vort- vertical line is drawn on that diagram and it says anchor on, 
It's not far into the state. Why not? Well, as soon as you notice the state coming up, that's when you anchor it. And how do you notice it? Well, it might be a change in breathing, a change in color, a movement of an eyebrow or the lips, a change in tone, a change in physiology. Notice whenever you notice a change and rely on your intuition to know when that is. So whenever you think the first part of the state is coming up, the anchor goes on right there. You know when it's happening, go with what you know. And where it says anchor off, that's when you notice that the state starts to go away and you take that off. And again, it might be a shift in breathing or physiology. But when you think you see the state going down, then you take your finger off the anchor. So we're going to learn, and when I say take your finger off, we're going to learn kinesthetic anchoring in the NLP practitioner. So we're actually going to touch the client on the knuckle. And it's a very easy place to touch. And the time frame that the anchor is on and the anchor is off is up to 5 to 15 seconds. Now, I didn't say 15 seconds. I said up to 5 to 15 seconds. So what that means is it must be at least 5 seconds. And it can be up to 15 And what you're doing during that time is watching the client using a sensory acuity, looking for changes in breathing and face shape and eyebrows, lips, movement, spine changes. You'll notice when it begins to receive and that's when you let go of the anchor. Okay, so now we're going to look at the third key to anchoring and that's the uniqueness of the anchor. Now I've been talking about the knuckle a little bit and the knuckle is a pretty unique place. So first of all, all the nerve delineations in the hand area are very close together because our hands are very sensitive to touch. We can differentiate very small things with our fingers and with our palms. It's also socially acceptable to touch people on the knuckles because we shake hands with people. It's okay to touch them there. So there's a social politeness and respectfulness. Secondly, the nerve terminations which are close together means that your touch has to be in exactly the same place and the same pressure. And that's number four, which is called the replication of the stimulus. So first of all, it has to be unique and then specific. So number four is the replication. So it has to be over and over in the same way with the same pressure in the same place and the person person will go into the same state. Of course, the number of times counts. And the more a person is anchored in the same place in the same way in the same state, the more powerful the anchor will become. The mnemonic device you have here to make it easy to remember is I-turn. I for intensity, T for timing, U for uniqueness, R for replication, and N for the number of times. Now, let's see how to do the process of anchoring. The process of anchoring is described under the four steps to anchoring. First of all, you'd have the client recall a past vivid experience and you're going to use that question on page 47, right at the top of 47, which is the state elicitation script. So you'll ask them, can you remember a time when you were totally X'd? Now X is whatever you want them to do, so it might be motivated. Can you remember a time when you were totally motivated? Or can you remember a time when you were just laughing so hard you were rolling down laughing. Can you remember a specific time? And as you remember that specific time, go back to that time now, go right back to that time down into your body and see what you saw, hear what you heard and feel the feeling of rolling down laughing. Good. That's how we do it. That's the state elicitation script. 
So do you remember the dog in Men in Black? And the dog eventually is in the car and he's listening to the song, Who Let the Dogs Out? Woof, 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 woof. For some people, that's very funny. And for us, when we watched that movie, it was super funny. And we laughed and laughed and laughed. If I want to remember a time when I rolled around laughing, I can just remember that movie. Remember that as the practitioner, you need to go into the state just as much as the client does. So if you want your client to elicit a roll down laughing, then you need to be laughing too. So you put yourself in the state. Now, why is that important? Because you as the practitioner, need to be in rapport with your client. And if you're in rapport with your client, then you need to be in a similar state to the client. And if you can go into that state, then the client will find it easier to go into that state. So the best states to anchor are naturally occurring states. So keep this in the back of your mind somewhere because it'll be important when we discuss how to set up a resource anchor. So the best states to anchor are naturally occurring. That means they're happening. There's something someone can experience right in the moment. So the person needs to recall a past vivid experience, highly associated state, one that they know how to do themselves. Now, step number two says to anchor. You're going to watch the state come up and as you see it going up towards the peak, the moment you see it, you notice a shift in the client and when you see that shift happening, you begin the anchoring process. You provide a specific stimulus, as I said, So that's the finger on the client's knuckle and you anchor that specific state. So that means you're going to put your finger onto the client's knuckle. And then the moment that you see the state go back down, you're going to take the finger off the knuckle. Great. So number three says change the person's state. Now that's called a break state and you're just going to change the conversation, misdirect what you're talking about. How's it going today? What are you doing? Do you like red or black? Do you like pink or green? Anything will do as long as you disconnect them and dissociate them. If you've done a good process, you can then go back and touch the knuckle and you'll see the state come up on its own because you've anchored it together. Now, if you don't see the state come up, it means you just need to do it a few more times because the state that they had wasn't quite strong enough. Now, it's not absolutely necessary for the success of an anchor to be touched. So you can use verbal anchors and you can use auditory anchors as well. Now, are the knuckles the best place to anchor something? Well, possibly not because we bump our hands all the time. However, for the purpose of NLP, we're going to anchor on the knuckles and we can always move the anchor location from one to another later by firing the anchor and moving it to a different anchor. Then you can, as you go through life, continue to top up that anchor all the time. So we're learning how to create a resource anchor now. The first one was learning how to create a basic anchor, but we can do so much more. I want you to look at the page on page 47 where it talks about stacking anchors. And what stacking anchors means is that you stack a bunch of anchors on top of each other. So you use the same place with a series of different intense states in order to synergistically create a very powerful resource anchor for a client. If you anchor a series of intense states in the same place, then what you'll have is a very, very useful anchor. For example, if you wanted to anchor motivation, it'll work better if you anchor some other powerful states. So for example, a time when you felt totally powerful or a time when you felt totally loved. Remember, love is a very powerful emotion. It's not mushy, you want powerful. 
in order to be motivated, you're looking for other powerful states because when people are motivated, they feel powerful. So it doesn't all have to be the same. It can be different things that all work together. So there's some examples of this on page 47. Let's say you've got a powerful resource anchor and then you need to talk to your boss. You've got a meeting or you've got to have a family discussion or something like that. What you do is you can fire off that resource anchor to help you feel powerful or motivated or loved or whatever it is that you anchored there. It's the same for every other state. Have you ever felt that you could have whatever you wanted? Have you ever felt that you could have whatever you wanted? And if you think about that feeling, it's very energetic and it's very common. And another one that's common is being confident. Now, if someone says, no, I've never really felt confident, then you can say, did you ever feel really confident? Because feeling confident and being confident are two different things. So you change the representation and see if they can then gain confidence. Now, remember, these need to be a highly intense, powerful state for a resource anchor. They are a state. Now, some of you may meditate and meditation may be a great part of what you do. And when you're doing anchoring, especially a resource anchor, we don't want you dropping into the void. So we're not going to anchor things like a state of bliss. Right? We're not going to anchor things like peace or anything like that because they're not really a state and they're not going to be useful in creating an anchor. We're going to talk a little bit about collapsing anchors. And one thing that you need to remember every single time is that when you want to elicit a state, you use the state elicitation script, which is on your manual on page 47. So let's turn to page 48 and look at how to do collapse anchors. So let's talk about the process of collapsing anchors. And in the training, we'll actually demonstrate this for you and give you an example. However, let's say that there's a minor unwanted state that you have a little negative state that just seems to come up every now and then and you just don't know how to get rid of it and every time you're in that situation that same state comes up. Like maybe you get confused about something or maybe you have a little bit of frustration. Now we're only doing these for a minor negative state. We are not doing major negative states. So things like anger, sadness, fear, hurt, guilt are major negative states and we're not using those for collapse anchors because we can get rid of those thoroughly with timeline therapy. So for collapse anchors, you can use any other states that you can think of, like frustration or jealousy or something like that. And what you're going to do is firstly get into rapport with the client. That's a must before you can proceed in doing any intervention or any coaching technique with someone else. You must establish rapport and you must get permission. So number two, tell the client that in a minute I'm going to do a process called collapsing anchors and that will necessitate that I touch you on the knuckle. Is that okay? So you're getting permission. And then make it clear what you're working on. For example, we're working on frustration. And we've got six positive states that are going to outweigh that negative state of frustration. So what you're going to do next is ensure that the client is in a highly associated version of each of those states. And if you look at the client and the client doesn't seem to be in an associated intense state then don't fool yourself and don't try to fool the client. It's either there or it's not there. And when you see it, 
That's when you apply the anchor. So what we do is we anchor all of the positive states on one knuckle. So six states on the same knuckle or an easily identifiable place. And then we use a different knuckle to anchor the negative state on one of the knuckles next door. So you anchor the negative state just once and you've anchored all the positive states six times. Once you've done all those steps, you move to number eight and it says fire the anchors at the same time until they peak and the integration is complete. Now you'd know this when you've watched the client. So you fire both anchors and both states will go towards the peak and they'll go higher and higher in intensity and then you'll see the client go a little bit incongruent. They'll look a bit weird. There'll be a little bit of asymmetry here. And you'll notice there might be uneven breath or some uneven eye movement or something that's asymmetrical. At that point, you'll notice that the state starts to come down and you release the negative anchor here. You take your finger off the negative anchor and then you continue to hold the positive anchor for an extra five seconds and then you release it. And then you ask, how are you feeling? Is everything good? Okay, great. And then you break state and you may use a phrase like, do you smell popcorn? Now then, number 11 is test and you ask, how do you feel about that state? The client either has to say, I feel like it's not there, or I feel like it's there, or I feel like I can do something else, or anything like that. And then number 12 is future pace. So you ask, can you imagine a time in the future where if you might have been in a similar situation, what do you do now? What happens differently? You can even ask, how is that different? Now, one thing that's very important is you must follow the script. The state elicitation script and the script for collapse anchors it won't work if you don't follow it word for word. The linguistics in this are very specific, so it must be followed word for word. The most important thing to remember is that we only do multiple stacks of the positive anchors. We never stack negative anchors. We only ever anchor one negative state. What does collapse anchors actually do? It gives the client new neurological choices. It doesn't take away the choice of being negative, However, it allows them the choice of being positive. The next thing we're going to move along to is chaining anchors. And this is on page 49. So you want to know why you should use chaining anchors? Well, chaining anchors is a technique that's used when the desire or the resource state that you want the client to be left with is, first of all, significantly different from the present state and far, for, far removed from the present state and the present state is a stuck state. Now a stuck state presupposes that the client in that state doesn't move anywhere. They don't do anything. They literally feel stuck. A great example of a stuck state is procrastination. You know, you should begin that project. You should wash the car. You should this, but you don't. You just don't do anything. So raise your hand if you have never procrastinated. And I'm just going to laugh because everybody here has procrastinated on at least something. So chaining anchors is a fantastic process to get rid of procrastination. And we're going to talk about procrastination today while we're learning about chaining anchors. The difference between collapse anchors and chaining anchors is collapse anchors is to offer the client a different choice. So instead of accessing a negative state, they can have six other great states that they can choose to act from. Chaining anchors is a process where the resource state is far away from the present state and when the present state is a stuck state. 
So the difference between the two techniques is that one collapses, that's a um, simultaneous process, so you fire both the anchors at the same time, whereas chaining anchors is a sequential process where you fire each anchor one after the other in a determined sequence. So wouldn't it be useful to get rid of all the stuckness? Like just press a button and all of a sudden you're not stuck. You know, do a little 15-minute process and get you unstuck. That would be useful, right? So now let's move on with chaining anchors. It would be really useful to get off stuck, wouldn't it? Why is this useful to learn for your clients? Well, to get a great result, to have the ability to move off a stuck state and into a resourceful state, that would be awesome, wouldn't it? And why? Because the more happy clients you have, the more clients you'll get. And that's a great why to learning chaining anchors. But the real reason for learning chaining anchors is to help us move our clients off a stuck state to a resourceful state. To move them or you away from a stuck state like procrastination. To move them, for example, to motivation. So what it is, is something that we use when the desired state seems significantly different and far removed from the present state and the present state is a stuck state. So let's recap on anchoring just quickly. You remember Bill Twitmeyer in 1902 realized the knee-jerk reflex. Um, he published in the American Medical Association and it was effectively ignored. Then uh, the Russian, Ivan Pavlov, he had Pavlov's dogs, the salivating dogs with their bell. You remember that. You remember the mnemonic device for anchoring. So I turn, which is the intensity of the experience, the timing of the anchor, the uniqueness of the anchor, the replication of the stimulus and the number of times we anchor it. Now, what is it? It's a precision model. Okay. The script that we follow is precise. The place that you touch on the knuckle is precise and the timing is precise. So chaining anchors is a simple anchoring technique that we use when the resource state is significantly different from the present state and the present state is a stuck state. We already know what anchors are. We know what they relate to. They're emotional states, not concepts, not beliefs, not anything else. So what do we need to know before we learn how to chain anchors? Well, we need to know how to design the chain. Now, in order to design the chain and decide the intermediate states that are needed, we need to know that not all people are the same. Therefore, you need to discuss these states with your client. They need to be states that are useful for your client as intermediate states. So if you imagine chaining anchors like a bridge across a river, the present state is one side of the river and the desired state is on the other side and it's far away, you need some pylons to hold your bridge up through the river. For example, if the present state is procrastination, then we have to insert intermediate state number one and intermediate state number two. Those form the pillar of our bridge and allow us to get from where we are to where we want to be that's far away. So remember, procrastination and motivation are significantly different. So those bridge pylons must be there to support the chain of anchors. The pylons in the middle are necessary. We want to have two pylons because that's what works best. So there's going to be four steps. The first step is procrastination. The last is motivation. And there needs to be the two steps in the middle. The four-step chain of anchors is useful for most people. In fact, I've not met anyone for which a four-step chain of anchors doesn't work. 
In order to be able to design the chain correctly, we need to decide with the client what those intermediate pylon states are going to be. You need to know what the criteria are for these intermediate states. So first of all, you need to think whether the client moves towards or away from. The concepts of towards and away from are pretty well known. Some people are motivated more by the carrot, moving towards the reward, and some by the stick, moving away from the punishment. So you need to discuss this with your client and find out what's the best state for your client to get them off procrastination. Because in general, the first intermediate state, so the one that comes directly after procrastination, could either be a towards or an away from, from procrastination. So an example of a towards state might be burning curiosity and an example of an away state might be frustrated or irritated or bored. Oh my God, boredom. Most people will do anything to get away from bored. So you need to decide first of all, does your client move towards or away from? Secondly, wherever you are in the chain, the next state must have movement. Because if it doesn't have movement, the chain won't pull through. It may go part way through the chain, but it won't get the whole way. There are some states that have movement and some that do not. As a generalized idea, it's not 100% correct because there are many exceptions. But in general, we can say that states that involve being don't have movement. Any state of completion, like I'm done with this, has no movement. So in general, states of being have no movement. There are some exceptions. So the state of peace is a state of being. It doesn't have any movement. So it won't work in a chain of anchors. Number three. How we, will we work out a sufficiently intense state to move you to the next state? So it needs to be sufficiently intense. So if procrastination is state number one, then state number two needs to be sufficiently intense to move the person off procrastination. Then the next intermediate state should be sufficiently intense compared to the first one so that the chain moves forward. And likewise, the last state in the chain, motivation, needs to be sufficiently intense to move the chain from state three to motivation. What you need to know is that the second to last state needs to be a towards state. So in a chain of four states, the second intermediate state should be toward for everyone. So it should be something that pulls your client towards motivation in the example that we're using here. Number five, states should be self-initiated. States should start from within the client, not because someone tell, tells them to do it, not because someone external says to them that that would be a good state and not because it makes them feel a certain way. For example, shame is a great example of a state that's not self-initiated. If you are the only person on the planet, there is no way you could feel shame, so it's not internally initiated. The state must be self-initiated. Number six, the state should not be how they already do it because if it's how they already do it and they're still procrastinating, then it's not working. And if you do it like that, then you're just going to give them another way to procrastinate. So you must need use a new state that they're not doing in order to be successful. And then finally, the last criteria, do not use major negative emotions. Theoretically, we could use anger and sadness or guilt. They'd be great things to motivate someone along. However, if you put one of those in, then the chain of anchors is not going to last after we do timeline therapy and remove those major negative emotions. So we will not use any major negative emotions in our four-step chain of anchors. 
So, no major negative emotions. There are plenty of other possibilities as intermediate states. Now, let's say you've done that and you're clear on your four states. The first will be procrastination and then the second and then the next and then motivation. Now, let's say we're still at number four and we've asked the client how we can get you off procrastination. You suggest to the client a state and the client doesn't know. And then you suggest another and the client congruently says, yes, yes, I'm sure that'll get me off procrastination. If the client says, no, I don't think so, do not use that state. If the client is yes and is congruent, then use that state. We can suggest examples of towards and away from states and see using our sensory acuity to which one the client responds best. Now, let's say you give the client several towards states and he doesn't respond at all. So you try excitement and you're asking the client, okay, you're procrastinating. Would excitement get you off procrastination? And the client says, uh, yeah, I guess so. Then try something else. Elicit a towards state that the client is excited or motivated by. And if that's not possible, then you need to look at away from states for that first intermediate state. Now, when you think of intermediate states, the states should be similar and of the same logical type. So if, for example, you ask a client, how do we get you off procrastination? And they say, well, when NASA announces the second man on Mars. Well, that's not even the same as procrastination. It's not related at all. It's not connected. It's quite out there. Remember that as a generalization in NLP, you are the judger. You are the one that understands some things because you are the practitioner. Your client doesn't know. So don't take everything that the client says and do it like a robot because otherwise we'll have robots doing NLP with us. So we have to judge from moment to moment, looking at the client and analyzing congruency and alignment. Does that make sense? If, ex if the example they give doesn't make sense, then it's likely on a different logical level and therefore it won't work. Some examples of away from states are things like boredom, frustration, irritation, confusion, and some towards states are things like curiosity, desire, passion, and determination. So now we're going to learn how to chain anchors. And I just want to quickly recap on the mnemonic race. Remember, we have the person recall a past vivid experience. Then we anchor or provide a specific stimulus at the peak. Then we change the person's state. And then we evoke the state by setting off the anchor. So let's look at the how for chaining anchors. We're on page 49. So number one, get in rapport. Use your sensory acuity. We learned that earlier in this series. Number two, tell the client what you're about to do. In a moment, I'm going to do a process called chaining anchors, and that will necessitate that I touch you on the knuckle. Is that okay? So when you're explaining the process, don't go into too many details. The client doesn't know NLP, you do. It's extremely important that we seek permission anytime before we touch a client. The client gives you permission and you proceed to number three. Number three, identify the undesirable present state, for example, procrastination, and decide on the positive resource end state, for example, motivation. Number four, design the chain. Decide on what intermediate states are needed to lead to the end state. For example, you're procrastinating. What gets you off that state? And you're going to ask the client, 
Remember, this is a do-with process, not a do-to process. Number five, get into each state as you elicit and anchor each state separately, beginning with the present state through to the end state. You will have to stack all states high to get a high intensity. Make sure that the subject is out of the previous state prior to anchoring the next one. In other words, break state between states, especially the last one and the first one. Remember to use the state elicitation script on page 47. The best states to anchor are naturally occurring states. The next best are past, vivid, highly associated states. The least preferable are constructed states. Remember precision is everything. So first of all, as in all anchoring, you get the practitioner into the state, as in you the practitioner, get into the state that you want to elicit in the client. Can you remember a time when you were totally procrastinating? Can you remember a specific time? As you go back to that time now, go right back to that time, float down into your body and see what you saw, hear what you heard and really feel the feeling of being totally procrastinating. You're eliciting it from the client. Remember that if you're really good at procrastination, you yourself will be procrastinating to finish the process. So you stack all the states high to get a high intensity. You'll need at least five instances of each state, which means you're going to need five instances of procrastination, five instances of the first intermediate state, five instances of the second intermediate state, and five instances of motivation, which you will stack on four different knuckles. Do you remember a time when you procrastinated and the client has the feeling start to come up and you see it with sensory acuity, you put the anchor on, as it starts to go away, you take the anchor off, you do this five times for procrastination, and then you're done with that. Then you move to intermediate state number one. For example, it may be boredom if it's an away from state. And you elicit that and repeat that five times, all stacked on the second knuckle. Then the next intermediate state, which remember has to be a towards state, say it's burning desire, you repeat the process and you anchor burning desire five times on the third knuckle. Right? So at this point, we've already anchored 15 states. Then you go to motivation and you anchor that five times. So now we're at 20. You must break state in between each one. So once you've finished anchoring them all, you're going to test each state and make sure that the client goes into each state. So you test the first anchor. You fire it. And you make sure that the client goes into that state of procrastination. Then you break state. Then you fire the second one. Then you break state. Then you fire the third one. Then you break state. Then you fire motivation. And then you break state. Now you're all set up. All the work has been precisely prepared. And you're at the point where you can do the chaining process. So you chain each state together. Firing number one. And when number one is at its peak, you fire number two. And then release number one. When number two comes to the peak, you fire number three and then release number two and then four in the same way. This is not a collapse because the two states do not peak at the same time. So when you see the client go totally into that state, at the peak of that you fire the next knuckle and then approximately a quarter of a second later you release the first finger. When the client goes into the third state, you release the second one and in the fourth state you release the third one and then you break state. Now you test, you fire the present anchor and the client should end up in the final state.
So we fire the knuckle for procrastination and we hold it there for four seconds maximum. And then you should see the client end up in motivation through sensory acuity. Once you've tested and the test goes correctly, then you go to number nine. Ask the client, now, how do you feel about procrastination? And the client should say, I don't think I'm going to do it anymore or something similar. And then you go to number 10, future pace. Can you think of a time in the future where if it happened in the past, you would have procrastinated? Tell me what happens instead. Okay, so that's chaining anchors. And we'll practice that in the room. You'll actually have a chance to do this and move yourself from procrastination to motivation in the room. I'd now like you to turn to page 52 and read through the physiology of excellence and the ring of power. And this is the end of the encoding section and it concludes the ninth program in our series.